Amen. Thank you for joining us in our second preview worship gathering. Amen. This is exciting. Uh, you know, it's, it's an adventure. It's a journey. It's nerve-wracking. It's, you know, it's, this is new for us. Uh, we've been in the community for about almost four years now doing community work, working with different groups. And so in this season, we felt called to call people into worship together on Sunday morning. We felt like it was a fitting moment, the season, the opportunity to do that. And so we thank you that, uh, that you feel inclined to join us this morning. We thank God. So let me jump right into the word. A lot has been said. Uh, thank God for our greeter this morning, Brother George. Amen. We thank you for uh, Pastor Hannah and the kids in the back. Uh, we thank you for everybody, the worship team. Uh, brother, we call, I just found out this morning, your nickname is Cable. Is that right? Okay. So, uh, Tim on sound, and of course, all our worship team. So, uh, we started a series uh, called Boot Camp. And um, we did our first, in our first preview service, we talked about the exposure of prayer. We talked about, you know, oftentimes when we think of prayer, we think of prayer in ways of petitioning God, asking God for things. But what we learned was is that in prayer, it's literally exposing oneself to the very presence of God, right? If you think about when you expose yourself to radiation, it does something to you, right? When you are exposed to some kind of trauma, it does something on the inside of you. So, but what happens when a believer, a follower of Jesus begins to expose themselves to the presence of God. Something begins to happen. Your will becomes to exchange for God's will. Your intention becomes exchanged for God's intention when you intentionally expose yourself to the will and presence of God. So this morning is going to be interesting because we're going to go into another uh, phase of our boot camp this morning. We're going to talk about the Bible. Right, And I'm sure everybody here is like, man, Anthony, we already know the Bible. We already get that. We get the Bible is the word of God, right, inspired by God. And yes, and I'm sure you do. Uh, but, uh, oh, I should have did that before I started talking. So, so the title of this message is The Art of Word. The Art of Word. The Art of Word. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Amen. Thank you for that. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll be reading from Verses, where do we want to start? Let's start from the beginning. Paul is talking to his, his protege, Timothy. It says this. We'll start with verse 14. Say amen when you got it. So Paul was speaking to Timothy, his young protege. He says, but as for you, 
continuing in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God, the man of God, the child of God, the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. So there's a purpose for scripture. And, you know, we know the academic stuff, right? You probably remember the stuff you learned over the years in Bible study or in vacation Bible school, you know, the Bible is uh, a a very powerful text. Uh, It was formed over almost a 2,000-year period. It stretches almost two to three continents in which it was written and put together by several dozen people over a 2,000-year period, two millennia. It is an ancient text, and if you are a Protestant, I assume that many of us here are Protestants, right? You got three main sources or branches of the Christian faith. You got Catholic, Protestant, and you got Orthodox. Those are the three main branches across the globe, across the earth. There's billions of people who follow Jesus. And so these three main uh, uh, branches of Christianity, uh, today we are a part of, so many of us here are part of the Protestant sort of stream of that. And so the Protestant Bible typically has 66 books. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the different other streams have more or less the same amount of books. So we know the normal stuff, right? The Bible is considered by many Christians to be the word of God. The bearer of the tradition, the the, the way that Christians come together and they study together and they read the Bible uh, amongst themselves and uh, personally in your private time, I'm sure you read scripture. And so it has a deep, 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 deep history. And so we got our, we got our academic part. The Bible is comprised of the 66 books, the Old and the New Testament. Everybody knew that? Never be ashamed to look in the table of contents. When a book is unfamiliar to you, never be ashamed. Every once in a while, I have to do it. Like the other night, we were reading Ruth. And I was like, ah, man, Ruth after the judges? No judges. Right. So you get the academic stuff, right? The basic stuff. The Bible has a history. Powerful history. You can know the Bible and be cruel. You can know the Bible and be an oppressor. The Bible has a beautiful history. The Bible has also has an ugly history. There's bodies at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean right now that were brought from Africa. The Bible was used to justify that. The Bible was used to subjugate women, people of color. I'm reminded of the, the, the quote from the great bishop uh, retired now in the Anglican church, 
Desmond Tutu. He was one of the, uh, the main organizers to, of the anti-apartheid movement in Africa. One of the main reasons, one of the main catalysts that apartheid failed in Africa, not just Nelson Mandela. There are many other leaders and organizers in that period. But he has this quote that he's often uh, attributed to him. I think it may have came before him. But he says this. He says, when the colonizers came to Africa, they brought their Bibles. And when they left, they left their Bibles and took our land. Christians, followers of Jesus, do not be self-deceived. You can know your Bible and still act like the devil. You can know your Bible and not be like Jesus. I'm reminded of the account given by Bartholomew de las Casas, who traveled with Christopher Columbus across uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And he has this quote from Christopher Columbus, and he says, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we shall enslave these people. Talking about the Native Americans as they, uh, as they saw them, the Arawaks, and the Caribbeans, and the Carib- Caribbeans. They were Native Americans, and it was justified by the Bible. So it has an ugly history. Colonization, imperialism, white supremacy, racism, sexism, all manner of ways to exclude people have been used by the Bible to justify sin and oppression. But I come by here this morning to tell you this. The irony of it is this. The Bible was written by people who were slaves. The Bible was written by a group of people who were out in this small little country in the Middle East who were marginalized and excluded and oppressed and put into exile. So the Bible itself, ironically, although in later years it would be used by the oppressor, God uses people who were slaves, who were oppressed, who were pushed to the side, who were kicked around. The Bible was produced out of those people. You'll never forget that. So what is the role of the Bible? I just want to share four things with you this morning real quick. There's so much the Bible can be uh, in our lives. I want to focus on four uh, roles of the Bible, if I may, with you this morning. And here's the thing that's interesting. You know, one of my, uh, when people always ask me about Bible trivia, I'm going to throw you a little Bible trivia out to you this morning. Who's the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah? I think y'all are good. Y'all are like some Bible scholars and stuff. How old was he when he died? What? Wow. Okay. Good, good, good. Here's the thing about the Bible that's interesting. Um... It's a communication. When you open the Bible, you feel like, depending upon where you're at, you feel like that you're being addressed somehow. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and uh, you can tell like they're not really addressing you. Uh, They may be addressing somebody else. 
And, uh, but when they turn around, they begin to address you. There's a certain feeling that you have, a certain posture that you take when you know that somebody is addressing you. So the Bible is a book that somehow, some powerful way, because it is inspired by God, is a kind of a communication in which God is addressing you. Now, here's the thing. This may be slightly controversial. I don't know. But uh, the Bible is not the word of God to everybody. (laughs) Because in order for it to be a communication to you, you got to be willing to be a recipient, a receiver of what God is saying. You got to be willing to understand that you are being addressed. So if you crack the Bible open and do not understand that God is addressing you, but you see it as Shakespeare, Hamlet, whatever, Mark Twain, or some kind of literature written by some dead man, then you do not see it as God addressing you. It's just dead letters written by dead men. But when you begin to understand that God is somehow addressing you, God is communicating something to you, then it becomes the word of God. Most times we just crack it open like Shakespeare. But imagine you say, God, what you got to say to me today? God, I'm listening. My ears are open, God. My heart is open, God. My, my eyes are open, God. Lord, speak to me. Address me, God. Even if you speak to me in silence, Speak to me. So when you come to the Bible, you come to the word of God, you got to understand that God is trying to, God is desiring, God is intending to address you. Second, God is inviting you into something. God is inviting you into something. It's an invitation. You're being addressed. You're being invited into God. Let's go into our text. So Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's saying, man, uh, don't forget the things that you were convinced of. Don't forget the things that you were taught from your youth. And he says something very intriguing, and I I think this is a powerful word for many of our culture right now because people are striving for the very thing or desiring uh, the very thing that Paul tells Timothy That's in the word. He says, he says in verse 14, he says, uh, continue in what you have learned. Verse uh, 15, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to do what? To make you what? Wise. Isn't that intriguing? So Paul kind of gives this sort of role that the scriptures are supposed to play in our lives. He says, the Bible makes you wise, not dumb, not blind, not unconscious. He says, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise make you wise. And we live in a culture where people are hungry for wisdom. They look at Oprah. They look at reality TV. It's like, God, give us wisdom. And people will find wisdom wherever they can find it. And I'm not saying this is the wrong Oprah. No, don't, don't stone me. 
But you see our society in a way in which it hungers and goes at the gurus and people that have this sort of really profound and deep wisdom. You see it in our culture. People long for that. And oftentimes in our culture, when you tell people the Bible's got a lot of wisdom, and they look at you like, okay, yeah. So the Bible makes us wise. And the thing that's interesting is that when Paul says that the Bible makes one wise, it's an interesting word. I won't quote the Greek to sound intelligent, but the word wise there literally means to be a sage. The Bible will make you a sage of God. (laughs) So one of the roles of the Bible is this. The first role is this. The Bible is a gift giver of wisdom. Bible is a gift giver of wisdom. So God is interested in you becoming a sage. How many here see yourselves as sages? Usually when I used to think of sage, I think about this guy in his robe, like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings or something, Merlin, you know, this long beard, lives in a cave somewhere. That's usually what I think about when I think about sage. But see, in the ancient world, to be a sage was uh, an interesting position or role to be in the world. Uh, As opposed to in the ancient world, when they saw you as uh, either a philosopher or a sage, there's a distinction. See, a philosopher is a seeker of wisdom. A lover of wisdom. Wisdom is always ahead of the philosopher. They're always trying to go after wisdom in their pursuit. In the ancient world, the belief was that continue to go after it, but really you're not going to really attain it. You're really not going to be able to hold on to it because it's always elusive. It's always hiding. It's always something ahead of you. So the philosopher from Plato to Aristotle for the pre-Socratic philosophers. And so there's this this idea that uh, wisdom is so far ahead, we constantly got to meditate and contemplate and debate and dialogue and and read and argue with each other to get to wisdom. But the sage is not seeking after wisdom. The sage is one in which wisdom finds them. See, it's one thing to look after wisdom, to try to search after wisdom, to grab after wisdom, but it's quite another thing when wisdom is looking for you. The sage is one who's a bearer of wisdom. They possess some kind of wisdom that God has given them. They literally, quite frankly, are people who are possessed by the wisdom of God. In the Bible, the word of God Wants you to make you, wants to make you a sage of God. Say, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a sage. Turn to your neighbor and say, I got wisdom. Turn to your neighbor again and say, wisdom got me. Amen. The Bible, and and that's crazy, isn't it? The Bible wants to make us wise. That's amazing. 
sing that song. You're amazing. Now, here's the thing about wisdom now. What is wisdom? I'm using this word a lot. It's basically know-how. It's like a pattern. The Bible says in Proverbs that God uses wisdom to create the world. God uses wisdom, used wisdom to create the universe, the cosmos, the reality in which we live in. The streams, the rocks, the sun, the stars, the nebula, the wormholes, the the Milky Way, Saturn's rings. God used wisdom to create all those things. And then God turns around and says this, you can have that wisdom. Isn't that something? God can expose us to something that is responsible for the very creation and construction and creation of the universe. Isn't that something? When you open your Bible, you are exposing yourself to the wisdom of the ages. A wisdom that is, makes the soul. It's tapping into God's blueprint, God's pattern of things. Wisdom also that God gives through the word of God. It's the wisdom from above that James talks about. The wisdom from above versus the wisdom from the earth. This carnal earthly wisdom that oftentimes we crave for and hunger for. But God says through the word of God, he says that I have a wisdom for you that is from above. And it's also deeper. Isn't that interesting? God covers the basis. So you got wisdom that's from above. The world in which we live, from heaven, from God. And then you got wisdom that's deeper than the surface of our culture. So, wisdom, wisdom, God's know how, God's blueprint, God's the manifestation, the expression of God's intention, wisdom, wisdom from above, the very wisdom that God used to create the world. And so the Bible dares to expose us to this wisdom that is responsible for the creation of the world. That's something, that's a heavy thought. This, think about there for a moment. That is a heavy thought. You being exposed to a wisdom that is responsible for the creation of the world. Amen. So then Paul says this. He says, uh, it makes you wise uh, uh, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So wisdom, ultimately, the highest point of wisdom, the greatest gift of wisdom is to understand that It will make us wise for faith in Christ Jesus. It will bring us into the orbit of Christ and draw us in into relationship with Jesus. And then he says that it will make us uh, uh, useful. Right? Verse 16 said the scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, for training in righteousness. And I love this because oftentimes we don't think of the Bible as a, you know, I've heard this kind of uh, 
this cliche or this kind of acronym that's been used before. And I've been trying to find a creative way to change this acronym. And it kind of it, <laughs> it kind of makes me scary because it's like, you know, it kind of goes against kind of what a lot of what Jesus talks about here. He says, pray that the kingdom of God will come on earth as, as it is in heaven, right? So people say stuff like, the Bible means basic instructions before leaving earth. How is that when it's giving you wisdom for living in creation? So maybe it's basic instructions. I don't know. I ain't come up with one yet. The Bible's giving you wisdom for life now. Because the wisdom that's in it expresses what God intended for the creation in the first place. That's the thing about wisdom. Wisdom is an expression of what God intends for the community in which we live. God said, I want the community to be like thus, to be this way, to be just, to be peaceful, to be whole, to be rescued, to be liberated, to have neighborliness, to have neighbors that love each other. And so the Bible is interested in us becoming skilled in righteousness. So the Bible is a, first, a gift giver of wisdom. The second thing is the Bible is a skilled artist. The Bible is a skilled artist. And what do skilled artists do? They make other skilled artists. You enter into any domain, any kind of skill, there will be a master teacher and he'll have, or a mentor, and he'll have protégés, trainees, students, pupils. And so the Bible is, believe it or not, the Bible is a skilled artist making you, training you, it says, in righteousness. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something that may be a little bit controversial as well. It does not say he's training you in morality. <laughs> yeah, that's our stuff. You can be moral and not believe that God exists. You can be a good person. Righteousness is at another whole level. Righteousness is what happens when God comes and dwells in your life. And your life becomes an expression of God's presence in your life. So, so, so righteousness is what happens when God invades, God shows up in your life, and your life begins to take on the character of God. Righteousness. That word literally means to be made right. So when you are a... a, a the righteousness of Christ is what covers us, right? Because we were no, we were unable to make ourselves that way. But when God gifts us with wisdom and he's training us in the ways of righteousness, first and foremost, because we have faith in Jesus, God's presence has come and dwelt among us in, within us. We now need to be trained with that. It's almost like the kid who's got the talent, you ever seen this in athletes or any kind of uh, any kind of activity? Man, they got talent. They got ability. 
They got capacity, but they're not trained. You can be given God's wisdom in God's presence, in God's, in God's uh, ability to do what you got to do, but that doesn't mean that you're trained in that. There's cross-training for us Christians. I got the Holy Ghost. I got my Bible. I got the saints with me. I got the mission of God, but I still got to be skilled in righteousness. I got to be skilled in the ways of Jesus. Thirdly, the Bible is a sage of liberation or salvation. He says it makes you wise for salvation. Makes you wise for salvation. The Bible is a sage of salvation. It gives you wisdom. It speaks to you regarding the things related to salvation. And one of the things that we're learning is that about salvation, that salvation in the scriptures is not just personal. It's just Jesus just isn't your personal Lord and Savior, right? And it blows me away when Christians use this language, and I kind of get it because God is a personal God. God does address us personally, but the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's our stuff. That's our language. Jesus comes to save the cosmos, the, the world, the universe. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling all things back to himself. Not just individuals, he says all things. God is in the business right now of restoring things, of, of liberating things. So salvation just isn't me in my personal life. That's part of it. But God has also wanted to rescue us what salvation means. Salvation means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. And I love this modern term. It also means to be liberated. When Moses brought the children of Israel across the Red Sea, Moses tells them, look back and see. Stand and see the salvation of God. Check it for yourself. It's an exodus. So salvation is uh, 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 deliverance, me personally, from the powers of sin and death, which we'll ultimately experience in the resurrection at the end of history. But salvation is also social, political, economic, cultural. God wants to send his people in different areas to be sages of salvation. How can this area be experienced, the liberation and the wisdom of God? You work in the community, health, and human services, and you deal with children or families in poverty. What is the wisdom of God in this place? What is God saying that we can do as an institution to alleviate poverty in this community? If you're in law enforcement, how can I, as a man or woman of God, with the wisdom of God, stand in, with the Bible open? What kind of wisdom, God, can you give me? How can we have better relations with the citizens of this community? As a mom and a dad in our family, God. God, we need wisdom right now, God. We seem to be captive to something. God, we need your wisdom to liberate us. Deliver us, God. Hosanna. Save us now, Lord. 
the sage of liberation. The Bible will give you wisdom for that. Do you believe that? Last thing, and I'm done. The Bible is a portal into God's new creation. (laughs) A portal into God's new creation. The Bible will make you righteous. Well, the Bible will train you in righteousness, right? We have the righteousness of Christ. When God sees us, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. But in our being skilled, becoming skilled, becoming trained in righteousness. Uh, God is inviting us into, uh, if I can give uh, any martial artists here. No martial artists? Okay. Well, hopefully it won't be too far removed from your reality. But the place that they train martial artists is called what? Who knows? Somebody said it. Dojo. D-O-G-O. D-O-J-O. I'm sorry. And the, the dojo is a space where the community gathers a martial artist and they're learned and they're trained in the skill of martial arts. This is what the church is supposed to be, actually. The church is supposed to be the dojo of Jesus. This is the space when we come together and gather wherever we gather. In this space, on that corner over there, at Coco Java, at the, at down under the bridge, wherever we gather, we should be ironing, sharpening iron. This is the dojo moment, right? So, so in the church, in the gather, in the community, we get skilled in the righteousness of God. And notice what Paul says at the end. He says, so that, verse 17, I'm going to finish here, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He doesn't say, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that so that you'll be equipped to be a good person. Did you catch that? Right? Did you catch that? He didn't say that you'll be equipped to be a good person. He already said it earlier. He said, you'll be trained in righteousness. He says that earlier. So the Bible is in our lives to equip us, to uh, capacitate us, to become able to be energized to do good works. And what are good works? You know, my mentor, my spiritual mother, Anna Rice, she had this saying. She would say to the church, and I'm sure many of your churches, if you have church experience, you know this. We would say, God is good. And all the time, right, it's just ingrained in us to say that. But what does it mean, good? Is it like Cheerios good? Like, mm-mm. Ben and Jerry's good? Good is this. Good is God's intention for healing, for peace, for shalom, for right-making, for making things new, for healing things. The Bible says Jesus went through all the land performing good things. What was he doing? He was healing folk. He was giving people their eyesight back. He was allowing people to walk again. He was 
people who were excluded, he would bring them into the table, into the fold, right? So Jesus is the example of good works. What God wants is what's good. So the Bible prepares you to do the things that God wants to do, to heal, to restore, to renew in our own lives, our family's lives, and the world around us. So we have a call to action here, right? If we could, you know, as I was writing my notes, I was like, man, you know, God, it would be like really cool if uh, we had, you know, we have altar call in church, right? But suppose we called it something else. <laughs> Y'all are like, uh-oh, what are you going to say? Suppose we call it altar call to action. <laughs> The Bible is not here just to make, fill your head with a bunch of verses. And so you can say, I read the Bible three and four times straight and through. But what good works are you doing? Not to save your soul because you've already been saved through faith through Christ Jesus. But if Jesus is in you, if the spirit of God is in you, and if the word of God is in you, we should see God doing things through you. But he's like, preacher, I ain't doing nothing. Just stick around. Stay in the dojo. The dojo of Jesus. Amen. The Bible is a portal of the God's new creation. God is designed to restore the new creation. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5 as well. He says, if any man or person is in Christ, he is a new creature, right? That's the King James usual translation. But a more closer English translation would be this. For if any person is in Christ, behold, a new creation. Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. So when you expose yourself to the word, the Bible dares to expose you to God's wisdom. It dares to expose you to God's intention for the world around you. So I want you to join in with us as we listen to the word. And the word sends us. See, it's one thing to know the Bible and quite another thing to be known by the Bible. Known by its wisdom. So when we go out and pray, we give the call out, say, hey, join in us in this ministry of Pastor Timothy Bates. Nightcrawlers. Some people scoff at this. I'm like, really? Before every great revival in this culture, in this history of this culture, it's always been precipitated by a, a committed group of people that would pray and be present in their neighborhoods, in their community. So let the word take you to prayer. So hope coming up. We live in relative privilege compared to the rest of the globe. I know you got a few jeans laying around the house, in the closet, attic. Bring those out to our Soul Hope gathering, gathering next week. What else? Join us on Wednesdays at Bible Lab. We've been having some really deep discussion about what does it mean for us as families. Because uh, we're not interested in just being a church in the four walls. I think anybody that knows us, no, we're not about that. Uh, but on Wednesday nights, we have what we call Bible Lab. 
and we are, it's almost, it's a dojo, right? Who's, who's, those who've been coming, it's a dojo, right? We're being trained in the skills of how to participate in God's mission in the community. And so we've been doing a really powerful series called Families on Mission. And we've been just breaking the ice, talking about what does it mean to look like to be a family in our house, in our neighborhood, on our block, living out God's intention in our neighborhoods. Not just bringing people to a gathering on Sundays. That's part of it. But where we live, what do we need to do? And so in that dojo at Bible Lab on Wednesday nights at me and Tom, at our home, uh, we're training people. We're training each other how to be skilled in the works of God. If you're interested, uh, I can give you our address. You can come out and hang out with us. We have a blast. We have a good time. You know, it's not, you know, stiff and, you know. We have dialogue and discussion, so I'm not like Moses throwing down thunderbolts at people and nobody gets a chance to talk back. It's an open dialogue. It's community. It's family. And those who have, who, who have been there, participated in it, they can attest to that. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you are making us skilled in righteousness. God, we thank you that you are making us sages, wise people, the bearers of wisdom. God, we thank you, O God, that Christ has been made unto us wisdom. And his presence in our lives, God, also means that your wisdom is in our lives. God, train us how to pay attention. Train us how to recall the wisdom in difficult places. God, we just thank you for the Bible, God, the word of God. Those of us who might be going through trying times right now, those of us who may be confronted with some kind of challenge or some kind of obstacle, God, we pray for your grace, God, your word, to speak to each and every person in this room. The wisdom that they need in this hour, for this week at work with their families on the streets, and in their community work. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that continues to lead us and guide us in the word of God, that it is true. God, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.